look at us. Look at us, you guys, you, me, Warriors podcast coming at you live. Well, live for me. You guys are listening to this via the recording, but right now it is alive, alive and well. I'm your host, Paul Alderson, in case you forgot. Uh, We are episode two. I am so excited to introduce to you episode two with our friend, Kevin Stokes. Fantastic interview. So glad Kevin sat down with us and uh, shared his experiences, his thoughts, his fears, to spend some time catching up and just reflecting on what what has happened in the past and where we see the future of this great planet. So a couple of logistics to get out of the way as well. If you haven't already checked out the website, thewarriorspodcast.com, the warriors plural podcast.com. Go check it out. You can get on there. You can see the different ways to watch the podcast. Highly encourage. Don't even encourage. I beg you, beg you, check out the mailing list. Get on there. Go to the website. Click on the link. Sign yourself up for the for the mailing list. I, I need your participation. Need your support here. Um, so use the mailing list. Not very often. Tell you about uh, the release of episodes like this. Also use it for uh, help to help the research for both the podcast, the books. Um, so I, I, without your support, uh, this is not going to be a success. So need you. It's part of the journey. If you haven't already. Uh, please do so. Check out that mailing list. And um, if you have checked it out, thank you so much for uh, for doing so. And I appreciate everyone, all the feedback I've gotten, uh, the support and uh, help so far. So what do we have in store today? So let's let's talk through this a bit. When Kevin and I were getting ready to to sit down and record our conversation, there's a, there's a few things on my mind and that came up during that. And so I wanted to talk that out with all of you. So Kevin and I, we conversed back and forth several times before we sort of sat down and, and did the actual interview. And he, you know, it struck me, he really sort of wondered if his voice was a sort of voice for which I was aiming, you know, for, for this conversation, for this podcast. And I, and I just, I have to say, I, I, I love that, right? I love that this podcast journey is still maturing and growing, that we're figuring this out together to see what this is and what this is going to bring us. So, but the fact that Kevin and I were having that conversation brings to my attention both the voice and the vision for what this podcast aspires to be. And what do I mean by that, right? So let's let's start with some counterfactuals here. Let's define this podcast by what this podcast is not. So number one, this podcast is not pro-military or anti-military. Yes, it's 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 a based on the experiences of others from their service both in the community and with the military, the balancing act of that, the pros and cons, the sacrifices and gains that we make through those experiences. But we're not aiming to be you know, on one side or the other. Number two, this podcast is not an echo chamber for us to sort of reinforce our beliefs and hear the same things we already trust in. Now, at times, it will sometimes be that for you and me because we agree on many things. But that's a byproduct, right? That's not, that's not our goal. 
Okay, so that's the second item. Third item. This podcast is not intended to be overtly political for the simple sake of poking someone or others in the eye. This podcast will touch on political decisions that influence your life or the guest's life. However, that is not the goal. This podcast will touch on political decisions that have influenced your life or the guest's life. However, that's not the primary focus. Our goal is not to overtly bring these political conversations unless they fit into the narrative, the experiences of our guest. And last and probably the most important, this podcast is not going to tell you how to think. I'm going to provide you the truth from the eyes of our guests, and you are left to think, analyze, and draw your own conclusions. This podcast is a place for us to come together speak our truths, seek to understand each other, and learn more about our community and the larger world. This podcast is not meant to be a, oh, everything is great and easy with our lives and our experiences. The goal of these conversations is to tease out the thoughts, dreams, goals, fears that we all share that strengthen our communities and unite us as human beings. We're all different but we're more similar than we might initially realize. So Kevin and I talked about these things and many more nuances before he graciously accepted to go on the record. So let's talk about Kevin. Kevin and I got to know each other from our time together in the Idaho National Guard. We spent a year of life, plus some, in our deployment to Afghanistan in 2006-2007. Kevin got out of the Army in 2012 as a CW3, Chief Warrant Officer 3. Outside of the Army, Kevin is many things. When Kevin and I sat down for this interview, he was a father of three young humans. And as I'm speaking here today, Kevin and his wife, Susan, are now the proud parents of a fourth child, little baby John. Kevin is a geek. Uh, However, we do not dive into geek talk in this conversation, but Kevin is a hardcore nerd like me. Kevin has also more than dabbled in real estate over the last decade. And if you know Kevin, then you already know that you are in for a great conversation in this podcast. If you don't know Kevin, then you'll soon understand him to be the kind of humble, honest, and true warrior we welcome to this podcast. Without further ado, I give you my interview with Kevin Stokes. Hey, Paul. Hey, Kevin. How you doing, man? Good. How are you doing? Good, good. Thanks for uh, making this work. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry that it's kind of gone this way. I spent some time trying to set up my audio better on my desktop, but... Um, I could hear my niece and children playing down the hall <laughs> too much. And the only other place I could go to that would be quieter is the walk-in closet that has no power, and I couldn't set up in there anyway if I wanted to. So I was like, I'm going to the truck. We'll see if that's better. Nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it sounds good. I mean, it's. I always sort of like it anyway. Like, I feel like the phone sort of gives it more of like a, a radio vibe. Yeah, I think the same thing. Yeah. It's not overproduced sometimes. 
Yeah, exactly. Well, sweet, man. Things are good this week. You got uh, things all lined up for the um, the new arrival coming? Yeah, as much as you can when you got three other ones that get in the way. I think Susan's over being pregnant for sure. <laughs> We're down to, what, four and a half weeks, I think. Yeah. Uh, or is there... Pre- like, Maybe five. Yeah, I mean, I don't know much about kids, but I kind of figure, like, on the fourth one... You just don't do any prep. You just kind of like, you just, you already sort of have everything figured out or you don't, or just, you know, things are going to work out regardless of how much prep you do. It's all going to change. Yeah. I I think there's a lot that, (laughs) there's a lot of learning that occurs between one and three. (laughs) And, and, and you learn what um, is worth worrying about, I think more than anything. And we're in a much, we're in a different house. We've moved to a different house for each child. And, um, oh, wow. When they're born. Uh, and, and so um, this is the first one where um, number three and number four will be in the same house. Oh. So, so we did a lot that, of buying. We'd buy, yeah. fix, and then flip and upgrade. And we did that a number of times. And then we've been in this house three years. We've been okay. married 10 years, and this is the longest we've lived in the house. All right. So you combine having a kid with remodeling a house and moving and moving all at the same time. And previously, is that what I just heard? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, the the timelines are different. This last one, when we moved here, she was, yeah. we moved in in October and she had Eli January uh, 2nd. So that's still, man, that's still, uh, that's a lot of work. Yeah. When we did it the last time we said, that's, that's it. We're not doing it again until it's we have to. So let's, let's put this in perspective. So, Four different places in f- seven years? Four different places in 10 years? More than that. I took my VA money. Um, I, after we got back from Afghanistan, I lived in a rental. I rented from Andy Isaac. Mm-hmm. And I lived mm-hmm. there for, I don't know, two or, two or three years. And then um, <clears throat> got antsy and took my VA money and I bought a duplex, moved in one side. And that was about or four months after I had met Susan. So I bought, gosh, I want to say it was a spring. No, I bought in the fall. And then she bought the following fall. She did the same thing. She decided, well, it's first time home buyer. She went and bought a duplex, moved in one side. And she lived there for about four months. And that was 2011 when she was in that duplex. Yeah. And I left the guard that December. I went on terminal leave. We got married uh, the last was on the, on December 30th and, uh, moved in, I moved out of my place and moved into hers and we rented all the units. And then we did that for like a year and a half and then kept the duplexes and we bought our, bought the next house and it was a total yeah. fixer upper and completely out of our skill set. And that's when Grace was born. And then we sold that, moved into another place. We were going to stay there a long time. But um, we had a problem with the HOA that just kept hassling us. And we were like, well, the house, the house is improved. Maybe we should leave. We didn't live there over a year. And then we moved to the yeah. next house. And then we remodeled that one. And Jane was born. And then we decided we wanted to change a, a few things about our lifestyle. And I got my new job at PCA. and. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they came with a considerable raise and it was enough to push us over the edge. And so we found the place we're at now and 
when do we do that? We've been here three and a half years now. Okay. And then we had Eli. We had Eli three years. He just turned three. Dang. And this place is bigger. It's bigger than our last place. It's an older home. Needs It needs work, but we remodeled the... We had some money from selling one of the duplexes, so we remodeled the kitchen before we moved in instead of remodeling after we moved in. Yeah. And I don't think I'll ever go back to the other way if I move again. If I move again and it needs remodeled, I'm doing it before I step foot in it again because that's <laughs> glorious because we haven't had to do anything here. Yeah. I don't even know where any of my tools are. I used to know where every single one of them was. I don't know a single one of them for, for working on the house. Well, that's pretty good, though. If you moved in, if you had the remodel done and then you moved in and then you didn't have to touch your tools house-wise after that, that's a win. Yeah, it's pretty nice. Yeah, and this house was 40 years old, so it's glorious to not have to do all that. That's that's awesome. Uh, I've only done it once. We remodeled a kitchen before we moved in and put some new floors in this one place in Virginia. And we had a little bit of overlap with our other place, but it ended up like I moved in, but Bria, the wife, she, she went to the beach until it was done. She's like, I'm not moving into that garbage. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, this is ridiculous. Uh, now, granted, it was like, you know, over budget and like behind schedule, but yeah, that's remodels. Yeah, yeah, that's fair enough. It doesn't change if you do it or you pay someone. It's it's over budget <laughs> and over time every time. So I want to go. I want to go back. I want to go back to Salmon Idol. I want to talk a little bit about you know a little bit about your growing up. But before we do that, sort of as a midpoint, I'm making this more about me than you, sarcastically. By the way, <laughs> I trying to remember. I like to remember when did we first meet like when did our eyes look into each other's and we're like oh that's kevin and you're like who is this god of a person and you're like i'm like i'm paul and uh, anyway i don't i think i don't think i'm remembering the exact details about us looking into each other's eyes correctly but um trying to think was it where was it can you remember and i putting you on the spot a bit but well so no i i i think when we i i i vaguely remember Maybe I don't think we were in the same company uh, when we were at home before we deployed. I was an M day guy up until yeah. three months before we went. We got called up in the summer, right? So yeah. I went in the spring of what was that? Oh five, and I started a in a, a little temp job working with Spencer Widman over at G two. Uh-huh. Yeah. And yeah. then and then I was an M-Day guy on the unit on the weekends. And I don't remember maybe meeting you once or twice there. And then I got to know you when they shuffled everybody around and put us in the companies when we went to to uh Fort Hood. Yeah. And I'm I'm pretty sure it was like in those those couple of meetings we had as a unit before we left. Was when I I mean, I knew who you were, whatever, but I, I didn't know you, right? You're just yeah. an acquaintance until then. It was the same with, it was the same experience for me with O'Leary and some of the other guys. The only person I really remember knowing well was uh, McKenna and Spencer Whitman, mostly Spencer because I was working with him. But even then, I didn't really know too many people because I had spent my time doing progression and was only real familiar with the IPs. And like yeah. Brad Drummond. Yeah. And it's kind of history and all the best. 
That sounds about right. Like, I mean, I was hell. I was at, I was still in uh, AQC right up until that summer before we left. So, I mean, I didn't actually get back to the unit, you know, until right, <laughs> right before the deployment, basically. Yes, I was going to say it was like it might have been like the yeah. drill weekend before we all loaded on the other airplanes and started shuffling aircraft out. I don't remember if you were on that flight with us, but I remember the long flight down. By then, I'd been hooked up with um, with Exley as a stick buddy. Oh yeah, that pretty much started from when we flew from Boise down. Because I was up with Rodney. I think of Brian Fox on the way down and Amthor. So it was kind of a Bravo Company ferry flight down. Yeah. Yeah, other than that, I mean, we'd randomly see people at uh, like simulator trips. I don't think I ever met you at one of those if I was down in while I was at uh, Arizona at Watts. I didn't get real heavy into simulator trips until until after deployment, after yeah. Afghanistan. But I, I spent I spent a lot of my time down there, especially when I got the AGR job and working at the hangar, and then I was I was traveling for sim trips all the time. Yeah, about once a month I came down there for a while. So let's let's go back a bit. Let's go back. Let's go back to sort of how you got there before that. So I mean, so you grew up in Idaho, right? Can you just talk a little bit about that? Just starting yeah. from sort of yeah. So uh, my parents. And so we can go all the way back if we want to. Sure, my dad's um, dad came out of northern Utah, and um, him and some of his brothers started a dairy farm up in Salmon way, way back in the early days of oh, wow. the yeah. 1920s, I think, 2030, uh, something like that. I can't remember. And then my dad was raised up there, and my mom, her folks are... Um, first-generation immigrants, grandpas, Serbian, grandmas, Croatian, and Polish. And oh, really? She's from Ohio, and grandpa's family went straight to, straight to Idaho. They were old sheep herders uh, up in between uh, Chalice and Salmon of the Persimmon Valley and a bunch of those areas. My mom was born in Salmon. My dad was born in Salmon. I was born in Boise and adopted. Uh, my parents adopted me when I was a, a month old, and went to live with them in Salmon, and we had family business that my dad was a part of, and my grandfather ran it. It was like a little, like D&B Supply, you know, a little farm and ranch yeah. place, Idaho Farm Supply. At any rate, they, um, grandpa sold that so he could retire, and so my mom and dad switched to being dairy farmers. Mom, at about the same time that we started the dairy farm, dad they long down bought a place on the river just north of Salmon and built the dairy barn and remodeled the house. And mom took a part-time, started out as a part-time gig at the post office uh, doing like fill-ins on delivery. And then she ended up the postmaster. Dad ran the dairy and became uh, chairman of the fair board and did that for like 12 years. And then he became county commissioner and we were running the dairy. And I did that all through junior high and high school. And then sold that. Yeah. I went to college in Montana at Western Montana College over in Dillon. That's like 100 miles from Salmon. Let's see. I played football there and went to college, but didn't really care. I was just there to play sports and got married, chasing work, and ended up Southern Idaho and ended up in 
Boise in 96. And I had a bunch of odd jobs that I, yeah, you know, all over the board. And when I was in college, I was working for, was CenturyTel at the time. It was the local phone company that owned the exchange and salmon. And I just did some installer work there when we weren't busy with the farm. And I knew that work. And so I ended up getting a job at the phone company down here in Boise. It was U.S. West at the time. Yeah, yeah. And it was just a, it was just a limited part-time job for a little bit. And there's a crew of about 30 guys. And my job, because it was part-time, was limited on hours. I couldn't work overtime. So I was always in the office at 5 o'clock and checking out, and I'd leave. And so I didn't really know anybody on the crew. And I'd been there about four months, three or four months. Mm. And I, I knew people, but I didn't really know them because I didn't, er, inter, didn't interact with them much. Yeah. Because they got to work overtime, and so they'd work it like crazy in the summer. And anyway, one Friday, there's this guy I'm working with. He's in the office early. He's notorious overtime guy. I've never seen him in the office after, after like five after eight. Right. And I'm like oh. shocked. He's there talking to him. Turns out he was a pilot in the 183rd out there flying Apaches. And I kept peppering him with questions. And he's like, sounds like you're interested. And I said, yeah, I kind of am. Cause I didn't really know that I was, if I was going to stick around the phone company and I didn't know you could go to flight school in the guard. Yeah. And yeah. he said, I'll give you in touch with the recruiter. It turns out that was Rick Simmons back when he was a recruiter before he took right. his commission. He, yeah. So that was drill weekend for them. And in, I don't know, it might've been July and or June. I can't remember. I talked to Rick like a week after that. And then there was an air show and I met Brian Fox there, and I asked him some questions, but he doesn't remember talking to me. Cause, <laughs> but I remember, I remember him, but he doesn't remember me. Right, right. yeah, that. story of my life, yeah. yeah. Yeah, right? And so I asked him a bunch of questions because I knew there was that uh, selection test. I can't remember the name of it now. I said, I don't know anything about this test. AFAST. AFAST, yeah. Anyway, he yeah. tells me, I said, what is the test? And he's like, ah, it's a bunch of puzzles. Do them as many as you can. Just make sure you can do them they're hard and and then the rest is all personality stuff and are you a good team player do you like excitement and can you look at the skyline and tell which way the aircraft is you know trying to fly that sort of stuff yeah yeah so i just went and did exactly what he said and then i went and took the test before i enlisted because i was too old to go ocs i was up against the age the age limit at the time like 20, oh. i think it was 25 25 yeah. or 26 I think it was 25. Anyway, I took the test and scored well enough to get selected. And I said, all right, hell, let's do it. And I took my oath of enlistment the middle of July, July, I think. Went to the August drill. No idea what the hell I was doing. That's where I met <laughs> Mandel. That's a story for another time. Oh, yeah. But I, because I had college, I was an E4, and Mandel yeah. was an E4, and I went in as supply. And so Mandel and I were got to know each other um, over a drill weekend, and he yelled at me once. I had no idea what the hell was going on. And <laughs> it was pretty funny. We laugh about that all the time now. And at any rate, I, I went to basic and I think it was Labor Day weekend that I left for basic, got down to Jackson and it turns out I was in the same company as uh, Amthor. So Amthor and I went through basic together. We were in different platoons, but we were the same training company. Yeah, that's crazy. I had no idea that you were there with Amthor. I saw him in the line. He was he was working. He was in uh, kitchen patrol <laughs> when <laughs> I was 
like day one or two after we got off the bus at yeah wee hours of the morning. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, Thor, hey, man. Oh, that's crazy. Do you remember, did we have, when we were basic training, did we have our, um, did we have our unit patch on? Could you tell that you were a guard member? I didn't because when I went to basic, I only had one uniform and a set of boots that I got from supply. The boots didn't even fit me right at drill weekend. And, and it, and everybody was doing rifle qualifications out of, out of the range. And my feet were killing me. There was a couple other guys there with me, but I think Amthor was not, I can't remember if Amthor. Yeah. Amthor was at that drill too. Okay. That was a summer of 99. It was before they moved into the building they're in now too. We were all in little teeny, little teeny buildings down there by the old World War II barracks is where like all the offices were. So anyway, I'm digressing. Yeah. Now correcting myself. Yeah. I guess we didn't bring any, we don't bring anything when you went to basic. You just, uh-uh. yeah, you left it all. No, that's right. Showed that's up. right. Yeah. Uh, maybe I missed it. Did, who, who was the name of the mystery man at the, at the, uh, at the phone company that was in, the, that was in the guard? Uh, Juan Castillo. It, what's funny about it is, uh, I, I standed on at the phone company for till 2009. Yeah. Um, after deployment, that's what I went back to. And I, I worked with, uh, Juan there, but I never worked with him in the guard because I didn't like, he's the one that got me in. I didn't even know him before we, I got in. Yeah. And right. Like a week after I enlisted, they gave me a full-time gig at the phone company and then they, and then they were going to have to let me go for five months. They were not real happy, <laughs> but they couldn't do nothing about it. It, it works because I stayed there 10 years. You know? yeah. And um, Juan, Juan got out of the guard and retired probably I want to say like a year after I got in. But when I came back, uh, I went enlisted, went through to AIT and supply. And, um, I come back knowing I was going to, my original intent was to go to warrant officer candidate school because I could get done. I could get in without an age, age waiver or wasn't a big deal or something. I don't remember exact timing. And then I was going to go to OCS, but I ended up that wasn't in the cards, but that's fine. I, I never, I never went down that road. I just stayed warned after I went in. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so I, I worked with one for ten years at the phone company and never once in the guard. And I mean, <laughs> I got in the guard because of. Even though he got you in, yeah, it's kind of funny yep. how stuff works out that way. Let's dig a little bit deeper. So tell me, I mean, you work at the phone company, you've got a job, but like, I'm sort of interested, and I think people are as well. Like, what motivates somebody to? What was your motivations at the time? Well, my dad went to Vietnam with the um, one of the, I think it was Charlie, Com- I can't remember the name of the company in the 116th uh, over in Idaho Falls. They were combat engineers. He, at 25, joined the guard to avoid the draft to Vietnam. And while they were in basic, his unit got activated. And so his unit went over. And then when he finished basic and AIT uh, as a combat engineer, they sent him over to meet up with his unit. And when he got in country, he spent like six months or no, four months with the active duty unit was only supposed to be like three weeks to teach him how to run mortars. And then he was supposed to go join his unit and it was four months. And then he went with his unit and he knew most of those guys because they were all, I mean, back in the sixties, salmon was small and Idaho falls was small and everybody knows everybody on that side of the state. And, Mm -hmm. um, 
to a point they still do now. And at any rate, he was all through my life growing up. I heard all his stories about well, his experience with the active duty unit versus the national guard unit. And yeah. so it always stuck with me that like active duty was probably not something I'd ever do, but I never had a, I never had a desire to go into the military, but I didn't have an aversion to it either. But I just knew that if I ever did, I kind of thought maybe the guard would be the way I'd go, but I wasn't really sure. And after I graduated college um, and I was floating around, I mean, I was married at the time and that was a whole other story. It wasn't great. It wasn't bad at, at first, but it got bad pretty quick. And I was sort of floating through life, not really sure. And I started grasping for things to do. And I started talking to recruiters, active duty, Navy, Air yeah. Force. Um, I never considered the Army or the Marines because all I was interested in was flying. And the only thing I knew about flying was whatever recruiting video I'd ever seen, right? Commercial. Yeah, yeah. All they told me is that you're too old to go to flight school for us, active duty. And I said, well, what about the reserves and National Guard? Because I know those guys have jobs. You can't go there until you go active duty for six years. And I was like, oh, all right. Well, I just, you know, believe my recruiter. Yeah. And, and um, I just said, yeah, I don't, you know, as much as that stuff interests me and as much as I want to fly, I'm just not going to do it. And at the time, I was living in Twin Falls, and so I couldn't afford flight lessons, but I could buy ground school through um, CSI. And I went through ground school one one semester there, and I was like, "Man, I gotta fly. This is this is. <laughs> I don't know how I got to right. do this, but I gotta go do it." Because I mean, I've seen helicopters and stuff my whole life, and air, small airplanes that go in the backcountry and all that stuff. Not that I'd flown on a bunch, but I just knew I wanted to do it. Yeah. But I was kind of like, I was kind of in a low spot, and when I got the job at the phone company, I was that was finally kind of a ray of hope for me to figure out what I was going to do with my life, you know, and what I was going to do when I grew up. And then yeah, I meet this random person I work with and he's in the guard and he'd never gone active duty and he was flying. I mean, he'd been active duty enlisted, but then got out and used his GI money to learn to fly and then went in the guard and they sent right. him to fly school. Rucker, right. And so I'm like, the moment I heard that I was in, man, like I was like, I don't know how the hell I'm going to do this, but I'm going to figure it out. And I think it surprised everybody in my family, including my ex-wife. Literally, I was, you know, it couldn't have been a month from when I discovered it to when I was enlisted. And I was off to basic, you know, a month and a half after that. Yeah, that's crazy. So your dad was in Vietnam. I think you also mentioned you had other family that was in the military well, like your aunt, like an uncle. Yeah, my mom's my mom's got an identical twin. And her husband, Uncle Gary, he's um, he was active duty. I don't remember if he volunteered, if he was drafted, but he was an artilleryman and, um, he went over and did a tour, but that was it. I don't, I don't, he wasn't there his entire career. And I don't know much about his story. I never really asked. Yeah. Like I never asked much about it. Most of the things I know about those stories now are, you know, I mean, hell it's hard enough for me to remember my deployments for, except for the really exciting parts. Um, and, uh, I think it's pretty much the same for them. Yeah. Uh. I've gone to a couple of VA meetings with my dad because he just had a birthday. He turned, was it, 79, right? And, um, oh, okay. I, I've gone to a couple of those those meetings with the uh, advocates and stuff. And, and like, it's just, I, never, I haven't gone to the VA for myself, but I've gone with him. And, like, I, I, like, 
sometimes I feel bad that I haven't asked more about it, but then there's other times when I'm when I'm listening to his stories, I, I know why he's reluctant to tell me or to talk about it. And then um, my own experience, it kind of feeds into that, and so just sort of keep it to ourselves and don't say anything and just try to hang out and talk about other stuff, you know? Yeah, I totally get that. I think that's part of the reason why I want to have some of these conversations as well for both me and for people I'm talking to is, is um, you know, there's certain times where I don't want to talk about it. And there's certain times where people ask me about certain things and it, it never really lines up right. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. It's not the right setting. It's not the right. You haven't had enough beer in your system to like want to talk about it or you've had too much beer. You know, I don't know. Like, there's always something. Just gotta... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, t- I totally get it. And what's weird, it's remarkable to me is that there there's i've been out 10 years man at 10 years yeah. i haven't i haven't touched an aircraft i haven't i went out to gallon yeah. one time for an air show and um like it was bizarre experience for me and i i haven't looked back i haven't gone back the whole thing has been strange to me because i don't think i go a week without it coming up on my on its own in some form or fashion not not hmm. negative or bad i just that period of my life has been the most influential on the time since then. I mean, I've had yeah. another job. I've had a couple of jobs since then. I went back to college and got IT. I've got a family. Those things are all there, but for whatever reason, that stuff is always hanging back there. And I never talk to them. Every once in a while, I might talk to Susan. Yeah. Sometimes it's difficult, and sometimes it's like, man, there's so much background, and I'm the type of person that wants to talk forever if I could get talking. So. I'm, I'm like, uh, I don't have the energy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's good just to sort of sort some of these things out. I, um, I found, I was talking to, uh, Barbero Barbie and, um, you know, it's funny because sometimes I get so excited about some of the things I'm like, I just pretend that I was there. Like I, I, re- I think I was there. Um, he was telling a story and I was like, oh yeah, I remember that. I was da 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 And then I, I went back and looked at my logbook and I was like, no, no, Paul, you were not there. Like you were, you were on leave. You were not even in the country when that happened. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Yeah. It's trying to sort stuff out in my mind. Um, so I'm not just telling stories. You know, what's funny is that some of my memories are from looking through the ort, right. And seeing the video and, and I remember things clearly from, more from from like a video game standpoint almost like a couple of a couple of engagements with steen because steen was my ip while i was progressing to the back seat in country and oh, we yeah, had a okay. couple of engagements and my memories of that are straight up looking through the damn um pair of goggles <laughs> that's what i remember i don't remember anything else i don't remember the aircraft i don't remember like i just remember looking through goggles the whole time and that's how i remember it and then when i see I'd see other videos, I'd have that same sort of like, oh, yeah, I was there, but I wasn't either. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, a clear video is one that trips me out most. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's just like a whole other thing. I want to sort of dive into the military there, but I, it, before we do that, so you're, you said your dad. So is your dad there in, um, in the valley, in, in the Boise Valley, or is Treasure Valley? Or is he... No. Okay. Everybody's in Salmon. Um Okay. Yeah. Yeah. My whole family, my mom's folks are still around. They're up there. My mom and her twin sister and her husband, they live in Salmon. And it's just, it's just kids of my generation I've that have moved away and only about half of us. Like I have mm. two cousins that have moved away and my sister lives in Lewiston. Susan's family is down here in Boise. Okay. So when you mentioned going to the VA, that would, with your dad, that was, that would be up in Salmon then or see come down. Yeah. Well, no, that was here. Yeah. 
I oh, teach okay. Him. So he, he, he come down here. Nice. Some of the stuff, now they go to, now he, they've changed some of it up and he goes to either the clinic at Nido Falls or to, uh, to, uh, Missoula, Montana. Cause it's closer. But kind of funny, right? Because I mean, I guess your dad got into the guard and then, then like I said, was deployed as part of a guard unit, um, to Vietnam. Right. Right. And you sort of have the same experience. I mean, so talk to me. So you were in the guard, you came back, you did your training, you, well, we didn't talk too much about warrant officer school, but I guess that would probably would have been right after, not too long after you got back. I got back from AIT, um, marriage exploded, uh, spent a year and a half cleaning that up and then sat for the board, got selected. And I went to Rucker in, I went in January of 2002. I went to Rucker for Warrant Officer Candidate School. And there was some delay at the start. And then I got into the, um, one of the cycles. I think I missed the first two cycles. I went down there in a hurry and then you get down there and they were had just record started the flight till 21 prioritization. And there was like, there's like a thousand warrant officers and 200 commissioned officers at Rucker trying to get through flight school in various stages. And, yeah. um, I had a long time, but I was at Rucker 20 months. I got there in January yeah. of 20 of 2002. And I got home in September. I think I want to say September. That seems right. So roughly 20 months, I think, of 2003 is when I got back. And let's see. I remember there's a big arms inspection when I got back. And then I started progression. And then what was it? A couple of years at home, just off and on M-Day stuff. And we were at school. You were just a name on a list to me. And then... And then I knew I knew that there was rumors that we were going to go, and everybody kind of knew we were on the cycle. And and I don't know, remember the exact details, but somehow I got on that temporary duty with with Whitman. I don't right. really I don't remember if I did anything while I was there, and I just remember. <laughs> well, there's a long-standing joke. If Whitman's listening to this, he'll laugh. There's a joke about. <laughs> I made a great warrant officer because nobody knew if I was doing anything or not, including me. <laughs> and uh, I remember w- Widman was going down to the Cipernet room and was checking the schedules for all the units because I think Brigade was – we were filling in for a bunch of jobs because Brigade was in Iraq. Oh, right. And then, yeah, so and then we went – I think we when we get – we got our orders in the summer of '05. Yeah, that sounds about right. But I knew they, I knew they were kind of coming because we were pending, and I went on vacation with my family. We were in the Black Hills, uh, and and Amthor called me, and he's like, "I got news, man. We've been activated." And I had to pretend like I didn't know because I wasn't. I don't remember if I was supposed to know or right. Anyway, I knew the orders were coming, and I have to be on vacation. I pulled over on the side of the road in the Black Hills. So I was on my Harley. It was not my Harley actually. It's my aunt's Harley. I bought Harley. I want to talk about the transition because I think the transition from like, you know, if you're just working your M-Day job right before the deployment, it can be sort of abrupt. But I think a lot of people, and I kind of credit the guard a little bit. Maybe it's selfish from the guard. I don't know. But like trying to get people on and out to the guard before the actual order started. Um, yeah. So they could sort of, put, you get your civilian job sort of wrapped up. You could 
do those things and you sort of get in the sense of what's happening and putting your boots on and getting out there every day or, you know, most days? Well, it was pretty easy in my job. But I, I think it's harder for other people. But my job, man, I worked for, for by then, it, U.S. West had been purchased by Quest. And, I mean, that country, the company's gigantic. CenturyTel yeah. then turned bottom and turned into CenturyLink. And they are today, but I'd already quit there by the time that happened. The, there was like 60,000 employees in that company, and there was something like four or 5,000 guard members and reserve members in the in the country, in across the whole country that worked for the phone company. And so they had a, for us, it was no big deal. They had a great program for getting out the door for, for deployment leave or, you know, active status for something or whatever. And so I'd used it to go on this thing probably three months. I think it was, I think it was three months before the unit got activated. So for me, I'd already was like being on active duty. Like I was going out there every day. Like it, there was no big deal for me, but I remember a lot of guys being like shook up. I remember Isaac telling me his story about when he got called up and he's like, no, it's funny. Yeah. I think he hung up on him. I think the story goes that Andy. Yeah. Yeah. Something hung like up. that. Yeah. <laughs> I had to call him back. It was yeah, like, this is pretty funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, um, Andy, if you're listening to this, you're on my list, buddy. Uh, we'll we'll work that out yet. Okay, so you're out there. You're out there a few months before the deployment. Yeah, talk a little bit about that. I mean, obviously, you're you're pretty comfortable in the aircraft kind of by then. Well, a lot of the guys had been to Bosnia before, and there was some other experiences there. But, like, what were your thoughts about the deployment itself? I mean... Did you know much about the conflict? I mean, you know what I mean? Like, did you have any other thoughts or fears, I suppose, like about the deployment at that point? I, I wish I could remember. Uh, um, well, I don't I don't remember a whole lot about what I was thinking. I was just like yeah. excited to do my job in some ways, but in others, I was, you know, like anybody else, apprehensive a little bit, kind of exciting to learn new stuff. But, I mean, what do we spend like, what do we spend like? Three three months at Hood, yeah, three four between, months bouncing back between Hood, doing gunnery here, and so like by the time we deployed to Afghanistan, it just didn't feel real. I mean, the only time it felt real to me was like when we were standing on or some of us standing on that platform looking at Air Force One that had landed there at Bagram, like the day after we arrived in country from yeah wherever yep. it was, Manus. Yeah, so I remember I remember that, and I remember thinking, you know, hey. This is weird. There's a big long thing called Disney Avenue, and there's all these stores here. I don't understand. You know what the hell is this? And then doing, I I remember uh, doing the orientation flight around Bagram with with uh, McKinstry, and I was just like, "What in the hell is this place? Oh my hell! It's nothing like I expected, and I don't know what I expected." Yeah, and then I think I don't remember who I was flying with when I I, I think it might have been Cliff when we flew from Bagram down around over to Salerno. I can't remember. I think it must have been Cliff because I think yeah. I flew with Cliff the most. So I couldn't find my logbook, but I think I flew with him for like 120 hours. Okay. I I remember yeah. just like I remember the flight across the desert and going, wow, this place is really like bizarre because it's mountainous and now it's flat as hell and there's sand everywhere oh there's the old russian base that's weird and then yeah finally getting over there to salerno and i just kept thinking man this place is as crappy as 
any other place. Like, this is pretty bad. I'm like, whatever. I just, and then just concentrate on what you're doing. And then I remember um, just thinking, okay, I don't know what we're doing here, but this will be cool. And then it didn't seem real. It just seemed like it was just flying around and pulling security and just looking for stuff and nothing going on. And for the first few, I don't know, probably the first couple of weeks. So I never thought much about it. Just enough busy, busy making sure I didn't mess up in the front seat and get slapped by one of the senior pilots. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 fair enough. I I kind of felt like it was going back in time. I, I think Steen kind of pictured it that way for me before we did our orientation flight. He's like, you're going to go out there. It's going to feel like you're going back a thousand years in time. Yeah, that part's weird. Yeah. It was really weird to me to go fly around there and see all those people and all those villages and go, how do they not have more economic prosperity? Like, there's millions of people here, but whatever. Right. Yeah, it's crazy. Who knows? Uh, time will tell, I hope. So let's see. So you're there. Let's talk a little bit about RL progression to the backseat. When you started going to the backseat stuff. I mean, we've been there, what? How long have we been there? Like, I guess I'm kind of jumping ahead a bit, but... No, that's fine. Um, no, so we had been there probably... We had been there long enough. I See, I flew with Cliff about 110 hours. I flew with Isaac yeah. probably 140. And then we all... Well, then the, the Zach and uh, Andy and I and um, Mel Amick, who was down in Kandahar... The four of us went to Australia on our R&R. And then Andy went home from there because his dad uh, was getting, uh, went on hospice, I think. And uh, so Andy left from Australia and went to Boise. And he stayed back another, I think, another 10 days or something in Boise before he got back. So by the time we got back, they um, they being, I might have been Amthor. I can't remember who it was, said, hey, it's time to start talking to you guys about progressing the back seat and I think it was George Johnson and Mike Rogers and me that were talking oh yeah I think we were talking with Mitch about it at any rate they decided to kind of transition us and so they started those guys first and I was the lower time overall pilot because they'd been back from flight school probably a year before I had or more and I was still I still W2 I think George was still W2 I can't remember if Mike was it would have been probably about eight months in and then we started progression. And so when they decided to put me on progression, they paired me up with, with Steen. And I think Steen and I flew probably 60 hours together. And so, like, we would do, like, uh, we'd go to do to maximize that transition. We went on nights for that. And so okay. Steen and I would go on nights, and we'd do a training flight for an hour, like three or four nights a week, trying to save our time. Yeah. So we do that. So we go out, we go do a training flight. It might be an hour, hour and 10 minutes. We'd land and then we could, that way we could not max, you know, not max out our hours on crew rest. And then we'd do QRS overnight. And then some, you know, then there was a couple of times where we had long days and whatnot. So it postponed. And so I, I don't remember, I think we flew about 60 hours. I don't remember how much of that. And then I took my check ride with uh, Rodney Wind. <laughs> I did Rodney. So I just get I set up. Rodney did 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 my annual, did my my A part in August, and then they started the transition later that, like probably a couple of months after that. 
and then okay. and then Rodney gave me my check ride for for my um, back seat, and so that was fun. And all we did there was just go on a mission together. I think we did a couple of EPs and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. Along the way. Yeah. Did that over a couple of days. So it was kind of interesting. It's not like when you're at home where you go out the whole hour, you know, whole two-hour flight, or if you're lucky, you know, you get two two periods. Right. It was all training, right? This would be like, here's an hour, and then fly like three hours of mission, and then you'd go do training flights. <laughs> so you had to keep track of it. So it seemed like it took forever to get done through all that. Yeah. Yeah, kind of an interesting way to have it all come together. Here's where I'm probably remembering it wrong. In your sort of maiden flight for in the back seat, was I your front seater for your first flight? I or I'm probably close to that, but I don't remember. Who were you flying with after that? I, I started flying with a lot of people. I didn't. Yeah. I, I was paired up when I was a front seater. I was paired up a lot with Cliff and you know, Andy. Right. And then I did a few flights with other people. I don't even remember most of those before I just went right into transitioning to the back seat. But I think um, it was either the first or second flight where I was the PIC that we went down after the group of about 200 dudes had crossed the border and um, O'Leary and Andy and Brad Brummett and someone else gone down and they were doing some joint ops with some Air Force guys and whatnot. And we were out flying security for the intel guys that were picking through the wreckage and what was left. Oh, I was down somewhere by Tillman, somewhere in there. Not Tillman, Oregony. That was pretty cool. Like Tillman was, I think, sort of east of Oregony, but yeah, yeah, or yeah, it was somewhere. It was somewhere. Maybe it was between those two. I can't remember. Yeah, it was near the border, right? Yeah, Tillman was. They were both pretty close to the border. I mean, Tillman was like pretty because it kind of. If I remember right, it Tillman was, right, was right on the border. Yeah. Just, yeah. yeah, that corner kind of. Yep. That was one of the few sanctioned border crossings, right? Where you guys had pre-approval to do that. That first one I did as a PIC, no, that was, we were just pulling security. The guys that crossed the border came from Pakistan and they were getting ready to go attack the, the they had predators on site and watched them for hours overnight. And then they all walked in, got down in the little valley, grouped up and then between A-10s and Hellfires and mortars or artillery out of, uh, it might have been working. I can't remember. Whoever, wherever it came from. Could have been skinned. Yeah, could have been skinned. It might have been out, yeah. Yeah, I could have. I think it might have been none of those. I just, I don't remember. Yeah. I tried looking at the map after you and I talked about doing this. And I was, wow, my memory sucks. I don't remember <laughs> where half this stuff is. I remember yeah. the big places but I don't remember all the little places. I tried finding Sharona and those, I couldn't do it. Some of them don't aren't mapped very well, or they have sort of different designations or different spellings even, you know, kind of, so it's a little yeah. bit, especially as fobs, like the fob names are not always on the maps. Like Oregon E is as a fob, it's kind of interesting. I was looking at the other day, there's actually people like leaving reviews for Oregon E. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> That's awesome. Like, <laughs> like half serious, like about the food or the facilities. I'm like, what are, what are we doing? <laughs> like, yeah. But uh, pretty funny. The Uber here sucks, man. The Uber? Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> they never show up on time. Um, 
okay, I'm gonna I'm put you on the spot again. So like, okay, so you've been there, yeah. you know, four or five months. You're going through. You've been on your R and R lead. Like, do you have any sense of like how you, like your sense of mission? Did you have any sense of if you're making a difference? Were there days? You know, was there any sort of sense of like you, we knew what the hell we were doing or not knew we were doing or? I'll tell you, Paul. Like at the beginning. Well, I don't remember exactly when this was, but it was be- I was it was close to the end of my time flying with Cliff Exley, and I think it had to have been about four months in. And we were night QRF. We were up at Jalalabad, and the KOP called us up, and the other crew was Andy Isaac and someone else, and I can't remember who it was. It was one of the lieutenants that I didn't know very well. Okay. I can't I can't think of who it was, but they were they were somebody uh, I don't remember if they had joined us in country or if they were someone that had been kind of shafted and hadn't had a lot of flight time. And so they weren't as experienced. And here I was. I was a front seater. The best thing that ever happened to me um, as a pilot was to fly with Cliff and then to follow on and go through the Andy Isaac finishing school. Those guys. I'm I'm not joking, man. I'd take off and and Cliff would say, "You got the controls," and I mean, and I'd be like, "What the shit, man? We just took off," and you know, and he's like, "You don't get better until you fly," and I would say, "I I probably got to fly 80 percent of the time with Cliff," and it was yeah. something similar with I, and so yeah. I was getting pretty confident. I'd had a couple of engagements. Um, Cliff and I had we were pretty in tune, and. Mm-hmm. There was a platoon that had walked out to do something. I don't remember exactly. I think there it might not even have been a platoon. It might have been a squad in the, in the middle of the night. And they got stuck in the dark and their lieutenant bled out. And they were trying to get back to to the KOP off of one of the ridge lines and they couldn't see. And so they yeah. called in the QRF because they were under pressure. And so Andy and his front seater, I, I wish I can't remember his name. They were they were in the back and Andy was having trouble with this flare because it was like IR crossover man. And so he was having yeah. trouble seeing. Yeah, Cliff was having trouble seeing, but I was under goggles, and and I was on it. And this whoever it was, they were doing fine, but they couldn't see as well as I could. They just didn't have as many hours under the goggles as I had. Yeah, right? and yeah. so I'm like I could see the I could see the ground guys and about partway through us pulling security for them they got into a spot where they couldn't really see the ridge line in the dark. And so I had to, hmm. I had to talk them down the ridge line and we're just pulling circles. Andy and uh, his front seater were up above us. And then above us was a, uh, I think a Navy guy or something. I can't remember trying to put eyes on, but nobody could see him. I was the only person that could see those ground guys. Yeah. And it was all Cliff could do to not run into the mountain. It was all, Andy could do to not run into the mountain and run into cliff, right? It was the worst situation ever. And I remember thinking there are men on this, this hillside that are trying to do right by someone who's, who is gone and they got to get to safety and I'm their only hope. And I remember like the chaos was so much trying to keep everybody straight that I couldn't, I couldn't communicate with the ground guys very well. And so I finally, I told Cliff, I'm like, you stop talking to Isaac or anybody. I, I'm going to handle the radios because if I miss these ground guys, I can't hear them. They're going to fall off a cliff because it was in the one kind of southeast side yeah. of the 
place they were at. Anyway, I, the, the cliff was like, okay, you got it. And so I got, this is the, I, I remember this because this is probably the, that best zone moment I ever had. I've never had in a moment like that since the aircraft. I'm a front seater. I'm under goggles telling ground guys, turn left at that tree that's about 40 meters in front of you and go to the right of it. Uh, uh, you know, go, to, go, go left and then go right, go down the ridge line. And then I would switch the radio and I would tell Isaac, I said, okay, we're about to turn and the ground guys are going this way. And then I would acknowledge to the hybrid, whoever they were, I don't remember. And I was just on it back and forth, back and forth. And we talked them down after 20 minutes. Those guys got back to the KLP. And I remember just like I was on it and everything was good and it was totally smooth. And, and when I got back to friggin' J-Bad, man, I was soaked head to toe. There was yeah. a part of me that wasn't drenched. But I didn't think about all that stuff during that time. And that moment, that, that mission was like the moment that I was like, okay, say what you want about us being here or not, but, but this is what our job's about. This is what we're supposed to be doing here. And I feel good. Those guys got back and it was because I happened to be the person in the right time. And I had a good night because Lord knows, yeah. you know, if I'd had a bad night or if I was like, you know, someone else that I couldn't see, but I just happened to be the only person out of all the crews that could make contact and make it happen. And that was pretty satisfying to me. And I still think about that a lot. So interesting. And so an intriguing story and a good reminder of the the role that we play there helping out each other for sure i mean for those listening kop korangal outpost but uh which i think might be obvious to a lot of people but yeah not not the most friendly of terrain by any means for anybody in that area for whether you're on the ground or above it yeah i always wonder those people walking down that cliff what their names are what their story is you know yeah. probably all lost to history at this point but i'm sure that they were Pretty appreciative of all that stuff that you guys were doing there as well. It's kind of an amazing story. We've been talking for about an hour, so I've got a few more questions maybe about the deployment, and then we can just go into sort of some more fun general wrap-up questions. Any funny moments or pranks or embarrassing moments or oh-shit moments, part of the deployment or part of your military career that, that we didn't already touch on? Okay, so uh, I can't remember the name of it. I tried looking on the map, but... You know where the KOP and that stream that goes, the river that goes straight north of it? Yeah. And it hits that little T there. And if you go, you know, if you're heading north and you go left, you end up at Abad. And if you go right, you end up at that other place. Nuray. And I don't remember the name of it. If you go, yeah, Nuray. Nuray? Yeah, Nuray was, right. yeah. Had the artillery positions down at the bottom and there's that, yeah. that open meadow before it. This was, so uh, months after the mission with Cliff and Andy. Andy was kind of fed up with having to train newbies because it was a lot of work. He he was getting frustrated and he hadn't been, even though he's a senior guy and got more flight time than God, he, he didn't have a, a lot of recent time in the Apache and I think he's getting tired and he saw how that mission had gone and so he begged, I think he begged Amthor to get me to fly with him for a little bit. And so probably... Two months of flying with Andy, um, we get called out because there's, I think, that open field that was just to the east of that array. There, uh, an ID had gone off, and there's a humpy split and a half there. We were pulling security for the crews that had tried to come up, and, and it was all quiet. 
And um, it was hot in the summertime, you know, middle of the afternoon. And uh, Andy and I were doing maneuvers as we were going, and I was getting kind of cocky and showing off, and, and um, it wasn't quite settling with power. But I had the, this moment where I kept pulling in collective. I couldn't get the aircraft to stop descending. <laughs> and I I decided, okay, well, this ain't going to work. And it was we were close enough to the ground that it didn't matter. So I pushed the nose over and picked up airspeed and flew out of it. But not without getting... Uh, to crop duster height, and um, and as soon as I started to get the climb to come out of it, and and I was on the verge of letting loose with bodily fluid, Andy just says, never said a word, nothing else. He says, I have the controls. I said, Roger, you have the controls. Let him take off. <laughs> and I, to this day, I still think about that moment where Andy let me almost kill us, right? <laughs> <laughs> and and but but he did the absolute best possible thing he could ever do and he never said a word yeah. and that made a more impression on me than anything else i've ever done uh, yeah. aircraft and um that one that one was a that one was a indelible intense emotional memory i think yeah because i was like wow that's the closest i've ever come and i don't think that was too long after after uh, those guys from tennessee had balled one up down there yeah sure if i remember right if I remember the timing right. right. I don't remember. I think it was it was fairly close in that same time frame. And I was like, Oh, okay. This is how that shit happens. Yeah, those moments, man, really it's it's always a blessing. And I don't use and I don't really use the word blessing very often, but when you can learn a lesson without the full impact of the bodily injury yeah. of that. And you're like, Okay. Yeah. I pretty much got as close as you could possibly right. get in that aircraft. Yeah. Yeah. That's insane. Have it bounce off the ground. And I said Nuray. Nuray's up north, but you might have been talking about, I don't know if the Gollum was to the west of the cop, like northwest, and then... Nuray was farther north, that's right. Yeah. I think. I don't know. You could tell me what, you know, whatever. <laughs> I'm actually staring at the map. You can go to Asadabad, and there's a split there. And if you go if you go west, yep. then you go towards the cop and the Gollum. And if you go, if you turn left, you go into the, that, that valley where the cop is. Or if you stay on that path, there's that Nagalim base right there at the end. That's it. Yeah, it's over by Nagalim. And then I, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about it. Like, do you have any memories, you know, um, trim? You mentioned, you know, flying with Steen there. Yeah. Uh, RL progression. Like, that's a sort of, a, I don't know. I mean, obviously he's teaching you a lot of things, imparting a lot of things on you at that point. Uh, but had you flown much with him before that? Any other memories yeah. of trim? Maybe maybe once or twice, not not much more than just interacting with him, you know, as a fellow pilot or whatever. And and uh, I didn't really know him all that well. I kind of knew knew him from from before I met him. I knew him from reputation because he had been out right, yeah. and he came back yeah. to go to the deployment. Yeah. And so so I knew him by reputation only, and I got to know him fairly well as you know being in the same company with him. But um, it wasn't. But I, I didn't really know what he was like as a pilot. I don't remember much about the transition, mostly because what I remember most about flying with Steen was that uh, I only flew with him for a short period of time, and I had most of my engagements in country. It was like between him and Scotty Pro, there was like this magical force that those guys were always mixed up and shit. And, yeah. Um, I happened to I happened to have a couple of of 
missions where we were QRF and some day missions and some night missions with Steen. And I mean, I had other engagements with other guys, but with Steen, it happened to be that we were a lot closer to the guys and you could like, you could look out the window and see them uh, just as easily as you could through the sensor system. Yeah. Yeah. So I remember that stuff. Yeah. And I remember that that he doesn't hesitate. That dude's, (laughs) that dude does the Marines proud. Yeah. He's, yeah. He just happened to be in the guard when he finally went to deployment. You know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. He's a professional, and no, no hesitation in in not that anybody did, but like there was a sense of purpose to his methodical nature and how he did things. And I remember that about him. Yeah. I don't remember him teaching me. I don't remember much about training flights. I just remember that stuff. And then after that, I remember being AGR, going to drill weekends and stuff like that getting to know him there and i remember i have more memories of him back home uh, than i do really in afghanistan yeah i miss him i cried i remember i remember being in my backyard that night and finding out i fucking cried for an hour in the backyard yeah yeah it's tragic yeah it sucked how did you come about it did you phone call did you see the news or do you remember a- andy i think andy was hunting with mckinstry or not with McKinstry, with mckenna Ah. And was with him when he got the call. And Isaac called me. Gotcha. Yeah, it's insane. I don't remember what they were doing. I just remember Isaac calling me. And then, yeah. Um. I think you know what's funny is I've had other friends. I had a out of my flight my flight school class, five or six guys die through various accidents. Yeah. People I knew from different courses. But, you know, you kind of it becomes part of the game, and you kind of and I feel numb to it for a little bit. But then when you lose someone that you're good good friends with the attendance yeah it's much tragic because i i remember you know i'll tell you the last thing that i remember um i'd seen steen in passing but the last thing i ever said is that when he found out that i resigned uh to get out i remember being in his office and he's like dude that's the most that's the most disappointing thing i've ever heard <laughs> and i was like holy shit that was the first time i had i had actually felt guilt about leaving and i was shocked because no one had no one else was like i'd heard all sorts of things but i'd never heard something like that and um yeah and then like a week later we went out there's a handful of us that went for some beers and and he was like ah you're like me you'll be back you can't stay out (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah and then you know sounds right it sounds like him yeah yeah so you kind of mentioned you kind of mentioned a bit. So you know, life after the guard, you got back, or life after deployment, life after the guard. So give me a quick sense of the timeline. You got we got back in '07, and then you were M Day for or AGR for. I was M Day for a little bit, but I was like, I struggled, man. I life on deployment is simple, yeah, and glorious. You got to do what you were supposed to do. You were trained to do all the other stuff. <clears throat> All the other stuff was taken care of. Like the only people that probably like, like, I don't know, man. I just, when I come home, I felt, I felt relieved to be home and it was fun, but it also was like, it's hard, man. Real life's hard when, yeah. you know, yeah. you got to do your own laundry, make your own meals and then go to your work and, and deal with family. And when you're on deployment, I mean, it sucks to be away from family, but you don't have to deal with all the other stuff that you normally deal with in life, but you just do your job. It's actually, 
it's grueling, but yeah. it's simple. And, and, um, I came back to my civilian job and I, as much as I liked it, I had some good friends there. Um, it just wasn't enough. Like I missed it. And, um, they had a couple of AGR jobs come open. I wasn't qualified for any of them. I sat for the boards, did horribly. Uh, but they all taught me what I needed to know about doing boards. Cause I'd never done a board outside of my flight selection. And then I, um, I think the hangar needed somebody and say, I can't remember how it ended up, but I ended up because I had gone to the safety course. I got a hmm. AGR gig for safety at the hangar. And it was, it was to backfill with, uh, with Fox because, um, that's right. Because McGee was retiring and Fox was going to move up. And so they needed someone to kind of get their feet wet to, so Fox could take over at state. All that. Anyway. So I fell in on that gig for like three years. And as much as I loved it, um, I liked being in the guard. Um, it wasn't any more fulfilling after the deployment. Yeah. And as my civilian gig in a lot of ways, I mean, it was, don't get me wrong. It wasn't bad, but, um, it was, it was grueling and I was single, didn't have nothing going on and was frustrating. Uh, in some ways I'm, I met Susan and, and we have pretty good relationship going on, but, um, about the time her and I met, what was it? Oh, I remember it was John Jacob. Oh yeah. Got, um, he went went to warrant right after being a captain, and he wanted to go to the maintenance test pilot course, and they weren't going to hold it unless they had enough people. And so I got to tag you're it, and so I went down to Watts, whatever it was, nine weeks or six weeks or whatever, uh, barely passed, uh, barely. The, the maintenance test pilot Jacobs course. Jacobs went through with flying colors. Yeah, MTP yeah, course okay. down at Watts, and then I don't remember how I did it. I said something. I'm like, well, I'll do this, but I want an IP slot. Cause I hate safety. I went out of safety yeah. really badly. And so I come home for like two weeks and then I went back down. I went down, did the IP course down at Watts, like right after. Okay. That. And I remember, I remember coming back um, and Susan flew down and uh, we rode my, I took my motorcycle down. We rode it back and that was a mistake. It was freaking cold. Oh, really? <laughs> anyway. Yeah. I got snowed on through Utah and we had drill weekend. And Mandel was my company commander at the time, and I've been gone for two courses in a row, and he still made me come fly a mission on a Sunday with <laughs> somebody that needed needed a IP, not an IP, but a, a backseater of some yeah, see for him. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, so I had to get back. So uh, yeah, that was brutal. Yeah, the IP and MTP course. Do you have any idea what year that was? Uh, it would have been, uh, I think it was, it was 2010, yeah, okay. Jan January, 2010. Yeah, makes sense. I think yeah. is when I went to MTP and then I came back for the, it was the, it was the May drill weekend that I came back after the IP course. Okay. That was, so any rate, I got back and that was May and then, um, of 2010 and I got out December, like my terminal leave was. I think my actual last date in was like the 22nd or 23rd of January, 2012. Um, talk to me a little bit about, you mentioned that you've thought about these deployments in your time in the military and it's, and it's kind of come up, like how has it come up good or bad, you know, when you're maybe in a job interview or, or relating with people at work, like how has sort of this guard experience or military experience 
presented itself. It happens all the time at work because everybody I work with is are all former service members. My boss is was a uh, on a submarine for six years, and he's only he's only a couple years older than me. Um, cohort that uh, my coworker that does the same job I do. Um, she was in the Air Force at Mountain Home, and her husband was in the Air Force at the time, and then she stayed here after she had you mm. then started a family and then um another co-worker he was infantry spent time in germany and in korea before he got out and he's my age and then he never deployed but um he got out before then you know yeah. active duty and then the other co-worker she, she her husband she's german and met her husband when he was deployed in germany and, the company I work with doesn't have a lot of, of veterans that I know of, but they're real heavy on the team I'm on. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's a couple of coworkers that are peripherally, um, another friend, he works on a totally different team, but I, we were co-located until we all started working from home. He used to work at the uh, Apache factory in Mesa, Arizona before he took the job oh, here that's crazy. a couple of years before yeah. I took the job here. So it's like this constant reminders uh, just at work all the time. Yeah. And then plus where I live now, um, I'm not too far off the approach path for one zero. And so I see, I see aircraft all the time. Oh, that's interesting. We got a hot tub in the backyard <laughs> so I can, I can, yeah. When I have time to use it, which we don't much anymore, but right. You know, you just get constant reminders if you're not very far from gallon. Yeah. You get always these reminders. Yeah. That's nice. All right, so sort of shifting slightly into some sort of wrap-up questions, uh, if you will allow me. Um, first one is sort of a bridging question, but so what would you say to someone that comes to you thinking about joining the military? What kind of advice would you give them or things or questions you would ask them? And be honest. I, you know, I kind of alluded to this when I was um, emailing you and um, uh things are different today than they were when I went in. Yeah. Um, but I don't, I don't know if that, if, if the world really is different, if it's just my ability to perceive the world is different, but, um, it's really weird and it's hard for me to wrap my head around the fact. And I told Susan this not too long ago that, um, as rewarding as my time in was, and as many relationships with people that I have, even if they're not current, I haven't talked to anybody. I'll always cherish those and I'll always be proud of working with those people. But if I had it to do over again, there's no way I would do it. If I knew then what I know now, and I won't go into all the reasons why, but the the vast majority of it is I feel like um, where I'm at now uh, in life, I'd be a lot farther along uh, had I not gone. But that may be just, I don't think that's really because of the experience. It's just, I could have spent the time a little bit more productively and not screwed around as much. But uh, what I would say is if someone were to ask me, not that they would, but if they were, I would say, make damn sure that you're not doing it for some ideological reason. Yeah. Do it, do it it for a reason that you're going to get out of it. Because if you're going to go into it because you believe um, certain things, you're going to be disappointed if if you hold those things very high. For instance, the things like 
oath to the Constitution is pretty important to me, and um, I understand it. I I understand it more today than I did when I took the oath. Yeah, and I'm and I'm I'm not sure if that would change anything, but but I think what I know now, I can look back and I'm I'm much more disappointed in the things that um, have gone on, not necessarily in the Idaho National Guard, but. In, in my own individual experience, but just overall, and I think um, I would I would tell people um, think long and hard about it because you put your hands in your life in the hands of of not not the people in your unit, but the people that get to tell you you know what to do. You're putting your life in their hands, and the vast majority of them. Uh, don't deserve that. And that's unfortunate, but that's the nature of the system. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think you could have ever convinced me in a million years. I could go back to my own self if I had a time machine and I could tell, I could have every argument that I know would convince me today. And I don't know that you could ever convince me not to have done it. So I don't, (laughs) for what it's worth, that's probably just old man speak looking backwards. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's good perspective though. You couldn't convince yourself not to do it, right? So there's a... There's no way. Yeah. I've tried, man. I, I've tried to have that conversation. And there's just no way in hell that I could pull it off. Because at the time, it was it was phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm sure there's a group of cohort of people out there that are age 20 to 28 that are probably the same as you, right? That are couldn't be convinced one way or another. Who knows? Um, what do you do when you're um, when you're not working? Let's see. I have three kids. Oldest is seven yeah. in the house. <laughs> then I I go to gymnastics. I go to you know I dance. We have all sorts of stuff, and I love every minute of it. I wouldn't trade it for the world. I, and it's been a blessing because we sort of became with all the COVID reaction we ended up being accidental homeschoolers and um i don't know that we'll go back because it's just been gone it's just been phenomenal for our entire family and our family life and um we're all in the house all the time i mean i might go in the office to work because i'm working remote now but yeah man it's glorious like our life i don't i I can't imagine a, a more balanced uh setup between uh family life and work so I, I I joke about all the kids' activities, but um, I spend a lot of time. We've been trying to find a way to uh, escape the corporate gig, not because of I dislike the job, but because it's just you're tied to it. Yeah. And this the last two years have been a big change for us, and so we said, you know, hey man, if the world is different, then then maybe we don't have to do things the same way. And so we've been looking at other stuff, and I sort of become a student of um, some marketing and sales, which is not something that comes natural to me. Uh, and, I, and I've and i been kind of immersing myself in that when I'm not dealing with the need for Band-Aids and boo-boos from <laughs> thrown toys. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> which I joke because Susan does all that. Yeah. Susan does all that. I don't do much of yeah. it. I just, I'm joking. Yeah, that's fantastic. It's just so great to hear. Well, when you're not doing those things, or anything that you're, uh, what are you reading these days? You mentioned at least one book. Are you? Do you have time for anything like that? Reading magazines, articles. Um, I just, I, I every once in a while in the wee hours of the morning, I'll read some stuff on my Kindle. 
what did I pick up? I just bought Robert Heinlein's uh, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. I've read the first page this afternoon, and I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm going to buy that. Because I, rem- I remember reading it when I was younger. And huh. I get into that again. Oh. I read, uh, what did I read before that? There's a couple of sci-fi series. I'm reading uh, Leviathan Wakes, Awakes or something. Okay. The first book in the Expanse series. Okay. And uh, well, there's like seven or eight in that series, and so I'm gonna read those. I like I like the military sci-fi stuff, uh, mostly because it's if it's too close to home and too real, it's like watching movies. I'm like suspend my disbelief and I ruin it for everybody. So I have to do future stuff <laughs> where they can't get it wrong. Yep, that's good perspective. I like I like that. I like your take on that <laughs> for sure. Outside of reading, consumption of uh, what are you watching? Streaming, Netflix, podcasts, Hulu's, Disney Plus. I'm pretty much podcasts at work because of, I'm computer nerd during the day, yeah. and and um, if I'm not chatting workers, I'm just listening to podcasts. So I spend a lot of time. I listen to a lot of a lot of libertarian stuff. Tom Woods show probably the one I listen to the most, Scott Horton. And um, I don't know if you know Dan McKnight, but, yeah. uh, but I've listened to him on a few podcasts because of his work at the Bring Our Troops Home and um, support that. And then Susan and I have been kind of some big supporters of the Idaho Innocence Project. We kind of made ourselves friends with, with uh, Dr. Greg there that runs the, the executive director there. And um at any rate, that's kind of sort of how I ended up in the libertarian world because someone wrote an article about some work that the Innocence Project had done to exonerate a couple of people that had been wrongly convicted. And so we just sort of involved ourselves in that peripherally, not really uh, much more than financial support. Yeah. A little bit of moral support, but just engaged in that sort of stuff and family. I don't watch much television, although we did just watch the rest of The Expanse. I like that. That was a pretty, pretty good show. Nice. But we've shut off TV. We don't have any of the kids have a few home movies or whatever, but right. we just don't have time for that stuff. Yeah. Well, it's super interesting. Like I, um, It's not the first time Dan McKnight's come up in my conversations with folks, for sure. So definitely worth something checking out. But, yeah. Um, yeah, Idaho Innocence Project. I'll have to check that out as well. So, yeah. Well, you know, it's funny, Dan and I and Kent Burns, yeah. we did um, an interview of of a uh, World War II aviator that served in the 183rd when it was an artillery unit back in the day in the one pilot. So Warhawk Air Museum's got that footage. Oh, really? Yeah, that's it. Okay. Some stuff for that, too. We never did finish it. My intent was to make a documentary out of it, but I never did it. Hmm. Like a lot of things. Sure. Yeah, a lot of things going through your head for ideas, obviously. Well, yeah, I really don't want to take up too much more of your time. I really appreciate you doing this, man. Like, uh, It's just a pleasure hearing from you, and I thank you for your service and your time and genuine person, so I appreciate that. I feel like from the day we met to now, it's always been genuine Kevin Stokes, and I, I think uh, that's what I'm looking for. Well, I appreciate it, Paul. And um, I'm, I'm, I know you guys are on your adventures, and maybe we'll talk about that uh, in the future um, to play the game, the, the opposite, and chat with you about what you've been up to. Because I would find that interesting. Um, but I remember I missed the, the 
the beer festivals and um i still have <laughs> two two of those classes have survived and my kids fight over which one gets to drink milk out of them now instead of beer fair enough fair enough so you're not you're not very far from uh, my mind for most of the time